Hello and welcome to Eternal Dirtles. I'm your host, Zach Clark, and with me as always, Phil Blackman. Phil, how's it going, man? With you as always is Phil Blackman. Zach, Zach, how's it going, man? I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, just a pretty pretty slow week for Magic News, obviously. Uh, so I think what we want to do this week is sort of talk about... We Initially, I wanted to, like, t- I, I think that I wanted you to kind of extrapolate on the, the, like, ABC deck building and how that works, but... You had an idea of talking about controlling the narrative and what that means as far as like in terms of sideboarding and deck building and stuff like that. So I think that's probably the better way to start. But I do eventually want to have that like, you know, like master class on ABC deck building. Yeah, at some point, like we have to find time to actually write write it all out. And, yeah. You know, actually have a, a, a thing that people can refer to. But yeah. the idea that uh, I, it, this is just stuff that I use constantly when I'm you know, iterating on decks or building new decks. And there's a lot of lingo that we float around in at least the legacy community. I, I, I guess at the magic community at large as well, but at least in the legacy community, we throw around a lot of terms, but we haven't necessarily agreed on what those terms mean. That at this point, like tempo is a meme. Value. Right? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, tempo, value. Like, there's a bunch of these things and they, they mean different things in different contexts. And so I, I found that like, as a way for me to better understand, you know, I mean, outside of uh, playing Magic, uh, you know, I work as a writer, you know, I have aspirations to continue working as like a playwright and a director in theater. So like words, words, words and what they mean specifically have value yeah. uh, and, and, and are based on tempo. So I, <laughs> I, I figure that one of the things that I have heard recently, and it's something that I've thought about a lot, is controlling the narrative of a game. It's something that I know pros have talked about before. I remember Sam Black did uh, talked about controlling the narrative. And what that I mean, exactly this goes means. all the, the concept of controlling the narrative goes all the way back to who's the beatdown, you know? Who's the beatdown? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I figured we would share how I think have how I've thought about controlling the narrative and what that means for deck building and specifically for sideboarding yeah. uh, in certain matchups. So I figured that that would be valuable. So let's dive in. Yeah. Well, so, before we get too far into that, I wanted to one, I want to talk about uh, some goings on with the podcast and stuff like that. One. We are currently no longer uh, sponsored by Moxfield, and that's actually, in a way, that's kind of a good thing. What's happening over at Moxfield is the guys at Moxfield have taken that, and they they have uh, taken a break from sponsorships because they've turned this into their full-time job. So they need to, like, pull resources and everything to make the site as good as possible. And they're, you know, like, uh, one of the guys, he's done. He's quit his job. He's now, Moxfield is what he does for a living. Uh, and, uh, and so... Uh, we fully support what, what's going on with uh, with that, and a great way for you to support them as well is to hit them up on their Patreon if you want to. Uh, if you, you know, if you've gotten some value from uh, Moxfield, uh, that's a you know that's a great way to uh, help out the cast, like at us as the cast, and uh, help out Moxfield as well. Um, as always, uh, you know, uh, you know, you can reach out to us on uh, Discord and whatnot and talk and talk more about it. But uh, you can also, uh, if, if you're uh, financially inclined to uh, support us on Patreon, we always appreciate that. It's Eternal Dirtles. Uh, sorry, patreon.com slash Eternal Dirtles. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, uh, liking, subscribing, comments, all that stuff is, uh, we, we firmly uh, appreciate that. Uh, and uh... Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think I think that's all I'm going to talk about on that front for for the rest of the episode. I'm going to assume that you guys are already on board with liking, subscribing, commenting, all that stuff. And uh, now we can get to the to the meat of the episode. You won't be inter- interrupted for the uh, rest of the episode. So, Phil, let's get let's get it going. Yeah, I, I always. I always find that there's a, a juxtaposition where I have no top finishes, but I have all of this theory crafting on like how decks should be built and like you know actual structure. But it's really just for um, which well, it's it's mostly for a way to better articulate ideas and better yeah. articulate you know it, it like you come up with your hypothesis and you want to execute to see if whether or not that hypothesis is is reasonable. And you know your experimentation, your playtesting leads you to believe whether or not that hypothesis was true and should be followed through on. And so when it, the idea of controlling the narrative, what does that mean to you, Zach? I mean, you know, it, the, the easiest way I can think about it is literally going back to that Mike Flores article, who's the beatdown, and saying, okay, when I play my first land, have I decided the role that I want to play in this, in this game, you know? Uh, and that, that could change per match, like it, like it you know, the, the, that was the premise of who's the beatdown. Um, or it could, or it could just be in deck building. You know, like your average blue, white, red control deck or your miracles deck is is gonna try and control the narrative by playing a control uh, style uh, board presence. But uh, that's not always the way th- things work out for a lot of other decks. And yeah, and so I want to expand on that because I think the the idea of knowing what your role is in a matchup or at any given point in a matchup versus what the narrative is can. It, it, it can get murky. It can get a little bit yeah. conflated. So that's why I think that this will be valuable because it'll delineate between what those things are. So yes, if you are, you know, if you're me and every single time you sit down at a table, you're playing Miracles, you are assuming that you are the control player in the matchup, regardless of what the matchup is. You're In the blind, you're setting yourself up for that. However, yeah. when thinking about what is the narrative of the game, part of that can become, it can come from your construction in your deck building. So for example, if I'm playing Miracles and I have a, a, a suite of counterbalances in my deck and I've designed my deck around counterbalance with a, uh, 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 a set number of CMCs at one, two, three, four, et cetera, to balance that out to figure out, okay, I'm, I'm trying to attack the meta at this position. Then I'm assuming that I'm going to be able to control the, the narrative of the game is gonna be dictated by counterbalance. Does that make sense? Yes. So in, in, in other words, the, narr- the legacy power level thing to do controls the narrative by deciding what the opponent will have to care about. So in the blind, I'm assuming that the narrative is going to be controlled by the thing that matters, which is in this case, counterbalance. So if we were to go into, let's say I'm playing against initiative where counterbalance is just a blank piece of cardboard, I go, okay, my plan for what controls the narrative is no longer feasible, right? Yeah. Because they don't, have, they don't have to care about the narrative that I want to set. So... In sideboarding, when I'm thinking about how do I want to sideboard for that matchup, and we have to think about who controls the narrative, what the narrative is, they implicitly control the narrative, right? If the if the if the base if the legacy power level thing that I'm trying to do is less powerful or not as 
strong as what my opponent is trying to do. Just end the game as quickly as the as the other thing even. Yeah, it, uh, effectively they get to control the narrative, right? Because yeah. the thing that the I have to care about what they're doing more than they have to care about what I'm doing, right? Uh, presumably, if we're playing Legacy, we're both trying to do powerful things. Yeah. But if they don't have to care, if if I have to care about their thing before they have to care about my thing, they control the narrative. And so when I'm choosing cards for my sideboard and how to sideboard in that matchup, in order to change the narrative, I want to find cards that can that can uh, change it so that they have to care about what I'm doing versus what they're what, just furthering what they're doing. If that makes sense, it does. And I think I think a great example of that actually, uh, it, you know, a great example. And I'm going to talk about something I did. Uh, <laughs> zero zero humility on this podcast. Um, a great a great example of that actually is back during I want to say like 2014 or whatever when Hel Helm of Obedience uh, Rest in Peace Miracles was a big thing and I was playing uh, Rug Delver which is a threshold deck you know like if if they get a Rest in Peace down you you lose like your Delvers are the only thing that's really doing damage you have some one one shrouds and some o one Tarmogoyf otherwise right um, and so one of the things I did to change the narrative was I started playing in my Rug Delver deck, Helm of Obedience in the sideboard, because my meta was so full of decks playing Rest in Peace that I decided that if I could go from being the tempo deck to being the combo deck and using their uh, their piece to combo for my combo, like I could change the narrative. Essentially, that, that, that's actually a really good example of like pivot plans. The whole yeah. The whole notion of a pivot plan you know, I want to change to a, a creature plant post board if I don't have any creatures in my deck. A, a, a prime example right now is you'll see reanimator decks, right? They play out of the graveyard game one. Everything that they're doing is obviously going to be faster than what you're doing unless you're also trying to play a turn one combo deck. And post board, they know the narrative is you have to respect the graveyard. You yeah. have to respect that they can kill you on turn one through the graveyard. So knowing that they control the narrative, they can shift into the show-and-tell plan. The Stronghold Gambit show-and-tell plan, yeah. They, 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 they control the narrative because you have to respect what they're doing. So yep. you, you are playing into what they what they want you to because they control the narrative. So either you you level them up by like assuming that that's not what the narrative is about, or you pivot them in a different way where like uh, uh, something like Containment Priest, right? Containment Priest stops both out of the graveyard and off of a show and tell. Yes. So that, that you getting to choose that version, like th that sideboard card as opposed to like rest in peace means that th because we know where the narrative sits and that you have to respect it, th that's, you get to choose something like containment priest over, uh, over rest in peace because, because you're able to identify that. You know what I mean? And I get right. that like, we, of course we all recognize that like, yes, we all know the show and tell plan. So I have to be prepared for that post board. But it's just a way to articulate, like, why choose Containment Priest over Rest in Peace in this scenario? And it's because they recognize as the Ganabator player that you're going to respect the narrative out of the graveyard. And so they will then position their sideboard in a way that believes that you will respect it, right? Yeah. And so just thinking a little bit further down the narrative, and then and then that's where, you know, metagame shifts through. Because if they go, okay, well, if they're, they're going to have Containment Priest, then I need to board in removal. Or I need to do something that's in not putting a, cheating a creature into play. Maybe I go into omniscience or something, you know. And I think I think one of the interesting things about that, Phil, is is when you're looking to control the narrative and you're thinking on that meta level, um, that's where really interesting sideboard choices kind of get made to to try and uh, sort of shift the the who who controls the narrative situation around. 
Uh, yeah. And another example would be like uh, in that same Rug Delver sideboard, uh, I was playing an Ashen Rider because I was like, well, if they if a show and tell deck comes out, you really can't do anything against uh, omniscience, right? So if you play Ashen Rider, boom, you both flip. Maybe you hit the the omniscience with that. But also, if they show and tell in like a great uh, Grave Titan or something like that, Ashen Rider hits that. They still have to remove the Ashen Rider. Ashen Rider hits the next thing. Not exactly the sort of thing you would think to see in a, in a Rug Delver sideboard, but in in a circumstance where you're trying to control what is happening in a game and trying to uh man what's the word i'm looking for uh sort of flirt with what your opponent thinks they know about your deck uh things like that can uh subvert is the word i'm looking for when you're trying to subvert what your opponent thinks uh you're you're capable of changing those up is actually often you know in in that term controlling the narrative uh can shift the game completely and that's that help that's helpful in that when you go back to what when you go back to deck building an idea in general your first deck building idea what you want to do that's why it's important when we talk about having the legacy power level thing to do that's why it's important to have one you need yeah. to have a legacy power level thing to do because if your opponent doesn't actually have to respect anything you will have no grounds to ever control the narrative and so how do you, how then do you do you appropriately choose cards to play if you don't actually if you don't have a means of doing that? That means then, then you're setting yourself in a position where you always have to play to their narrative yeah. and then they will get to outplay you because you will have to think about playing around things that you otherwise wouldn't have to if you controlled the narrative, you know? I, 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 I imagine this is also similar why anybody who's ever played lands, it, it becomes a compelling deck that people commit to forever because you know, I, I was just watching the Legacy Four Seasons uh, event before we hopped on here, uh, and one Four of Seasons landscaping. Happened, yeah, <laughs> one of the plays that happens it was it was a Grixis Delver player playing against the Lands player, and the Grixis Delver player had two Volcanic Islands and a Wasteland, and tapped out to play True Name Nemesis. The opponent end stepped uh, a crop rotation and they made a twenty twenty, while the Grixis player was at nineteen life. Right now, they yeah. had the answer on the table. They had a wasteland to protect them from that line, but the land that they sacrificed was a maze of it. And so the the lands player got to control the narrative of saying, "Okay, I know that you're playing Gurmag Anglers. I know we're in game three. I know I know what your threat suite is. You're gonna have a lot of trouble getting through this maze of it because I can control your small creatures and your Gurmag Anglers never or your Merktides are never gonna be able to get through this uh, maze of it unless you want to fire your wasteland off on it." Yeah. And instead of doing that, the Grixis player was like, okay, I'm just going to play this TNN, ignore the Maze of it, and then they got to make a 2020 with a Wasteland sitting on the table that was tapped. Now, that is a, that type of positioning. Now, granted, you have to have the tools for it, but that kind of positioning is controlling the narrative, right? The lands yeah. player presented the, the narrative is this Maze of it matters. And so the Grixis player played into that narrative and was like, okay, I'm going to actually, I'll, I'm going to play that, right? But if we know going in, if the Grixis player had had the sense that, okay, they don't have a 2020, I'm in no fear of dying right now because I have this wasteland on the table, which means I control the narrative. As the Grixis player, I have this wasteland. And if my opponent wants to make a 2020, they will not be able to do so as long as I have this wasteland untapped. I control the narrative. Yeah. By tapping out for the TNN, they handed control of the narrative over to the lands player. Now the lands player needed to have the resources in order to capitalize on that moment, but they did. But they would not have even with the resources it wouldn't have mattered had the wasteland remained untapped now that's a that's that's a choice that's made in game where it's like if you understand what the narrative of the game is right it's you can't make a 2020 
as long as I have a wasteland up. So that means that you have to act. You, the onus is on you to do something, not me. Yes. I have this wasteland. I am set up to deal with what matters in this match. You have to deal with it. And then by lowering the shields, they passed it over and then they got punished and then lost that yeah. same turn. And I think and that, that the thing with that was the the uh, the person who played the true name nemesis was like, you know, I have to make a calculation based on percentage. Like, is there a chance that my opponent will have it this turn? Or is there a chance that if I give them like eight turns to draw something, I'm going to lose? And they and they decided that it was a they had a better chance of doing it now, be, doing something risky, and trying to go for the win. You know, over a course of obviously a few turns, but like trying to go for the win now instead of waiting and allowing your opponent to figure out another way to fish himself out of that. Now that's a, obviously yes, it didn't pay off there, but like that's, it, I think that's what was happening. It didn't pay off there, but that, that's also a, a position where, okay, if you're the lands player and you know that they're going to use Wasteland to try and control the narrative, right? And if you think about it in that sense, the lands player is the one who's doing the more powerful thing. Yeah. So they control the narrative. So sure. my, opponent my opponent has to respect the, the storyline of dying to a 2020 by putting the tools to stop them from getting hit by a 2020. As the lands player, you can try and recapture the narrative by moving into something like, uh, you know, classically it's like tireless tracker or, you know, some way that does, some other win condition that doesn't care about Wasteland, because once you do that, you recapture the narrative and then your opponent has to respond to that, right? So it's really like the narrative is who's, who is putting the onus to act on the other person, right? Yeah. Who is compelled to act in order not to die? It's, it's, it's very similar as to why Wasteland Days as a shell has been the most powerful thing forever, like for Legacy's entire lifetime. It's because if they have Days Wasteland with a clock, they always control the narrative and they control yeah. it so early in the game that the onus is on you to act. You have to act and then you walk into these tools that punish you. Now, the thing is, is we all have known this intuitively, right? Like these are things that we we we, we play around stuff and have pivot plans and like we have the the, the, the instincts and the the, the the agency to be able to recognize these things, but being able to go, what's the narrative of the game in every matchup can then help you identify the tools that matter in those things as opposed to being like, oh yeah, I want to do a pivot plan because how often do we just build a deck and then put like a couple different things of like what we want, Well, we need our graveyard hate and we need, you know, something for the, like we need some number of red blasts or whatever. And then, you know, like, we just put in numbers of cards and just because they're the most commonly played cards, but if that's not what your deck is optimized, is, is going to be able to take the narrative back using, then they might be subpar choices, you know? That's not, and this is not always to say that if you know what the narrative is and then you're making a card choice, that will always be effective. You know, you do have to play test and understand. Like something that, going back to my first example, if I'm playing Miracles and I feel like I'm always a dog to initiative because they always control the initiative uh, or they always control the narrative through the initiative, that yeah. in order to, the, the, the thing that I want to be able to control the narrative is I need my terminuses to be relevant. The legacy power level thing that I'm doing is terminus. So I need to do something to make terminus the thing that matters. Like if they have to respect terminus, they're gonna change the behavior in such a way that, that you know, they will not extend over the board. Maybe they'll only play a creature at a time and give me more draw steps, right? But in order to do that, the, the part of I mean, aside from initiative drawing, uh, you know, a ton of resources, the thing that actually punishes me is the room trap, right? Just getting lava axe to the face. Yeah. And the legacy power level thing that I'm trying to do is control the board. Yeah. And if you getting lava axe to the face is is drastic because you're gonna take, you know, like what your average 
uh, turn count for a win is probably 10, 15, you know, in that in that area, right? So that means that if they turn one uh, a, a initiative guy and they keep the initiative all through the game, you're getting hit for 15 for free. Yes, the example is that comes up a lot. And like anybody who wa wants to see this actually play out in action is you can go over to the 90s MTG YouTube channel where there's a bunch of videos of me playing Miracles Against Initiative. And what happens consistently is they will have an extremely wide board that they developed after they've gone through the the the, the dungeon a couple times, the Undercity yep. a couple times. So they'll have, you know, four to six creatures on the table. And what will happen is I will terminus the table at a relatively low life total, and the board is otherwise stable, except they just trap and kill me, right? Yeah, you're at, you're so, at four or something like that, and they're like, well, you've got two turns to figure out how to gain some life. And so I'm thinking, okay, if the thing, if if the way that I can change the narrative back to the legacy power level thing that I'm doing and make them respect that is, is there a way that I can make it so that getting trapped is irrelevant? Now there, are, you can say that maybe there's, you know, maybe you play something that's like heavily in life gain, so you can make more draw steps that way. That's where You're Triumph actually, and St. Catherine comes in, right? But the thing is that when you do that, when you, when if yes, if I were to do something like Triumph, right? But the problem is, is that the narrative hasn't actually changed. Even if I, let's say I have a, a triumph on the table, right? I am compelled to consistently swing and protect the triumph because they still control the narrative of the trap. Yes. Right? The only thing that I'm doing with the saint in that position is I'm trying to offset the fact that they control the narrative, but I don't actually have it. They're not Not to mention, you, you're not necessarily getting in and taking the initiative back from them. That's a, that, I think that's a huge part of, of uh, controlling the narrative in that game is like, it, you can become the beatdown, you know, as it were, and gain gain that agency back from them then you're good but the problem is is that uh terminus is a is a two-way a two-way street you know like you're gonna lose your yeah. guy too the, the example is i i think that the reason why i find the initiative to be uh really like conceptually uninteresting in 1v1 is because it's the physical representation of the narrative right <laughs> whoever has the, who, whoever has the initiative is winning on the, the nose game. right you know what I mean? Like, like, like you aren't like unless you're playing a game where you don't care about the initiative. In which case, you control the narrative, right? Like, if you are a turn, if you're if you're Storm and can kill them on turn one, they have to respect the narrative of being dead on turn one by playing shit like Mindbreak Trap, right? But in, in in something that's not that, where the initiative actually is the the controlling the narrative, it's the physical representation of the narrative. Whoever has it, you put the onus is on the other person to act. The thing is, is that if I'm playing a deck where I want Terminus to be the legacy power level thing, is what I believe to be the legacy power level thing that I want to exploit, putting creatures on the table and trying to take the initiative with Terminus is not a, a cohesive plan. Like, that's not a coherent thing to be doing. So I'm thinking either it is effectively soft banned, right? Like, what I want to do is effectively soft banned and I need to choose another deck because I can't ever actually control the narrative in this meta game. Or what are tools that I could potentially use and play test to see if I can retake the narrative? I can I can take control of the narrative again. So something that I, I is on my Moxfield uh, deck list right now is I have a couple of ruined halos in my sideboard. Now this will this will likely be a failed experiment. But when I had some people who like have been following my Moxfield and they go, Phil, what the hell is ruined halo for? I go, well, ruined halo is for the initiative matchup. It's the Undercity is a card that I can name. It's not a token. So right. uh, we, we've done the rules, I checked the rules, I can name the Undercity, which means that I can't, I have protection from the Undercity. So you can't trap me, right? It now, is five damage, it's not, loss of five, it's not loss of life. You have to target a player. Target okay. player loses five life. So Ruined Halo gives me protection from trap, right? 
All right. So if, if, if the trap is what was controlling the narrative, then my hypothesis is if I can ruin Halo naming the Undercity and then I can terminus away their table, the onus is now on them to continue acting. Now they have the initiative and they'll get to continue doing that. But the legacy power level thing that I'm trying to do of keeping the board clear so that I can either I can, you know, win the game either with a big entreat the angels at some point or with like a Jace the Mind Sculptor control like as the board continues to get swept with Mystic Sanctuaries, right? Now the the the, the onus is back on them to act, right? Yeah. Like the, I don't have to do anything. They have to do something now. Because even though the initiative is recouping them resources, I am equipped to, to deal with the other resources that they're leveraging with the initiative. The only thing I couldn't stop was trap because it's an uncounterable. Yeah, model. I mean, otherwise they're just playing a bad way weenie deck. So the, now, yeah. now to, to, just to, to, you know, disclaimer here, I recognize that this plan is probably subpar. The initiative is just too powerful for something like Ruined Halo to be effective against it. But the thought process behind the choice of Ruined Halo is through this idea of being able to understand what's the narrative and how do I take it back, right? Uh, so yeah. even if it doesn't work, it's at least giving you the way to articulate the rationale as to why you would choose a card over another. In this case, rather than uh, trying to, because I, I tried the other things where I was like, okay, I'm going to play more creatures and try and take the initiative back that way because I figured you have to take the initiative. So I was on, you know, I'm going to control that by going uh, Snapcasters, uh, Source the Plowshares, Snapcasters, Source the Plowshares. So I'm going to play, I'm going to max out my Snapcasters and that's the plan that I'm going to go into to try and take the, to control the narrative. The thing is, is that I found that that didn't work in playtesting because they had ways to take the, the initiative back outside of combat. So it, re it remained that whoever had the initiative controlled the narrative. And so I'm thinking, how can I control the narrative without controlling the initiative in this particular matchup? And so the conclusion that I've come to is Ruined Halo. And until that's proven too ineffective, it's where it's it's where the hypothesis is. You know what I'm saying? So or until you get sick of judge and calls. A, and that's the thing. Like, <laughs> it, 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 like, like when I say Ruined Halo and, and you, you guffaw there, it's like, yes, it might be a laughably stupid idea. But the thought process behind it is at least coherent with this, with this, uh, this idea behind how do I control the narrative? Yeah, right? and, I mean, and choosing my, my my card choices. Look, we talked about the the helm idea before. Completely stupid, but you know what happened, Phil? Is people stopped playing, like citing in rest in peace against me, because they knew specifically Zach Clark, the player at this local, would have a helm, and if he just spent his ponders and brainstorms setting himself up to like get five lands and a helm with counterspell backup there was not a lot that they could do and now zach, zach you, you you you've transitioned me into the next thing that i wanted to talk about with what the about the narrative perfect about and, and and how to control the narrative the idea of controlling the narrative in particular matchups in a vacuum is cool, right? Totally kosher. You want to be able to identify that with the deck that you're trying to play because if you want to become a master of a deck, understanding the narrative of your deck versus every other deck in the field is important. And understanding what that is gives you a level up in the mastery of the deck that you're playing. The narrative, however, will change from meta to meta. Exactly. Because if it is believed in the show and tell matchup that they pivot into specifically show and tell out of reanimator, Right, so I should say the reanimator matchup. Yeah. But if 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 the meta game at large, and the reanimator player knows that the meta game at large knows that the pivot plan is show and tell, then the way to t to to recapture the narrative is okay. I'll play uh, arcane artisan, and just get around all that hate that you're playing. Right. Yeah. And then the meta will evolve. And as long as you're in tune with what the meta is and where those those card choices currently sit. 
you'll be able to identify those choices and that's where the churn should ideally come in with your card choices out of your sideboard and that's right? where you so, get into the the whole subverting the expectations thing that i was talking about and, before and, and and then that's where effectively attacking a metagame can really come into play because yeah. if you are if you are if you have a really good uh grasp of what the metagame is and by metagame i don't mean like the top decks i mean like of the decks that you expect to run into any tournament at like that you expect to run into at a tournament that you will identify what is the things that they are likely to be playing and then i can make my card choices based on that to control the narrative in that matchup with the deck that i'm playing yeah it's i a think lot a lot of, words, of that comes makes, with you know I mean? with not just getting in reps but getting in reps in that scene so like yeah at your local you know like you know x y and z decks are going to be there but like if you're able to go from like you know, uh, one of those one of those ways was when I went to uh, that vintage event in like the summer, and because vintage events are kind of few and far between, there was another one a couple months later where I looked at looked at what was going on with my deck and looked at like what worked, and I was able to say like, okay, like if I I'm seeing the same sort of decks for the most part, and like Vintage is a great example because not a lot changes in three months, right? Uh, I can be like, okay, Collector Ulf was definitely the, the Vintage level power thing to do, right? And then I just made sure that my deck was stacked with, with Collector Ulfs, and I basically ended up, I, I went almost under, I think I lost one match in the, until the top eight. Uh, I think I think that vintage. There, there's an example in vintage. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a, vic, a, a vintage aficionado. But my understanding as to an evolution of a deck that came out of controlling the narrative, the bizarre Baghdad decks are really powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that people would beat the bizarre Baghdad decks is to is by playing a bunch of tabernacles. Because the whole crux of Bazaar is you'd only play yeah. one land, you wouldn't be able to actually produce any mana, and you were just cheating a bunch of creatures into play. So a free tap, like a tabernacle on the table, costs zero mana, and I and theoretically sweeps their board because they don't have any mana to pay for the creatures. Yep. So where did the deck evolve to? The Bazaar deck adopted Gaia's Cradle so that they could combat Tabernacle of the Pendle Veil. And now that deck, there's just another ba a Bazaar Baghdad deck that is like Cradle Bazaar. Where they use the 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 green they mana could to just play like a hundred grand worth of magic cards in its land base. Grand worth of magic cards. But like <laughs> they, they did Guy's Cradle, and then their Jeez. offset of Guy's Cradle is they actually can cast some of their spells, right? They can cast their Venge Vines or whatever. But then they also can put it into a root walla and just pump it and kill you that way, as like essentially give it like big fireballs. So well, the, root walla, you know, uh, basking root walla can only be used once per turn, I believe. But it, I'm I'm saying that you can actually <laughs> use that. You could use that ability. Of now, course, yes. Where the where it couldn't before. But yeah. it's not it, like the, you didn't put Gaia's Cradle into your deck because you were like, well, I need a way to activate. Yeah, I need to activate my basking root wall. You, yeah, you, you were like, you were like, they're controlling the narrative by playing. Like they they understand that I'm the power level thing to do that they have to respect. But once they put a tabernacle into play, the onus is on me to act. I can't do anything until I get that fucking tabernacle off the table. Of course. How can I? How do I recapture the narrative? Well, and they're not going to be playing Cradle, wastelands. If I play a Gaia's Cradle that effectively turns off a Tabernacle and it's legendary and they can't have a second one, then until the, the onus is then back on them to do something. They either have to Wasteland and, and target the, the, the Gaia's Cradle or they have to uh, wrap the table again. But if that's the case, I'm, I'm designed to rebuild. So the onus is on them to figure it out. You have the narrative. They got to do something, right? Yep. And now that's just a deck. 
that just like the evolution of the deck came because they wanted to recapture the narrative. Now, is that necessarily always going to be right? No, everybody's deck is going to be different. People are going to be playing on different levels. And hopefully you are on the highest level figuring out, okay, how do I control the narrative in every matchup I walk into? But the evolution of a metagame came because people were trying to figure out how do I control the narrative as this deck, as this archetype. I think, and I think that sort of goes back to the, that sort of encapsulates the whole like, uh, no, understanding your metagame and like, uh, you know, and, and like I said, that could be local, that can be like, you know, this was on a national scale. Uh, you know, be, the, the beauty, like the beauty of specifically legacy and vintage is that so you, you know, over the course of like, uh, you know, let's say like one standard block, right? So few matches are played in comparison that it's very easy to get a feel, at least regionally, for what's going on. So like if I were to look at the metagame for SEG and, and I really feel like you have to play through those things to really understand what's going on. Um, but, and then I move to, you know, like the, Richmond is, is in like April or something like that, right? And I, I have a pretty good idea of what the, what the metagame's like. And then I can build my deck to control the narrative when, when we go to that when we go to Richmond, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Have, having a sense of like the, the the region that you're playing in and, you know, I mean, yeah, get, having experience on the ground, if you will, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you can, you can be as um, technically proficient as you want in mission control, but you're not necessarily going to know what combat on the ground is like until you've been in combat on the ground. And, and I yeah, think that's do... specifically where MTGO sort of uh, screws people is because uh, I, I feel like you just don't get the same the same amount of deck variety on MTGO as you do at like uh, at like an SCG event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even though the the, the goal of war is going to be the same no matter where you are, how you go about fighting that war is going to be different in the jungle versus in on a beach. You Perfect. Know? Yeah. Like you, like it, it just requires different tools, and knowing what ground you're actually playing on is important. But the now the I, I think that the the last thing that I want to say about the narrative is having something like this to be able to articulate what you already have an intuitive sense of for playing the game for so long is beneficial if you're trying to a improve a deck and b not get tired of a deck like the every single time i play on 90s mtg and I, you know if i'm looking at uh, the comment section everybody's like man love that phil just refuses to give up on miracles even though it's unplayable it may be unplayable but until i exhaust all debate. the until, until I exhaust all of the, the possibilities of being able to take the narrative back and all the matchups that are giving me problems, it, it makes it so it's exciting to still- Also, yeah, it's a fun puzzle to work out, you know? If, if you're not like bleeding $15 every week and you like need that money, you know, it's a it's a fun puzzle to solve, you know? But having <laughs> the, the, knowing and being able to identify this type of like th these types of uh things in your deck building like how do i control the narrative in any given matchup is also how somebody can just become a better tuner you know yeah they, there's they're, they're, every they're, everybody in the in, in the community somebody will be like are you a better deck builder or are you a better tuner and people would be like oh i'm way better at tuning oh, or somebody will be like i'm way better at deck building and it's like well if somebody has a grasp of deck building theory you know whatever they're whatever they happen to be building it off of to give themselves a means to measure something against right like the only reason that you would have like the, the whole concept of abc deck building it's not like there aren't other ways to build decks yeah i think that abc deck building has just like been a reasonable way for me to make measurable changes against over time you know as long as i can if, if, if this is a structure that makes sense 
then I can, like, the recipe of how to make a cake is the same. I can try different frostings, but I can't try frostings if I don't have cake, you know? Yes, yes. And so th there's tons of different ways to bake a cake, and then you can put different frostings on those different cakes. But, like, until you know how to bake a cake, who cares if you have frosting? I mean, I'd have to fact check that. I've never baked a cake in my life, but uh, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll agree with you for now. But then conversely, if somebody goes, oh man, I really know how to tune. I really know how to identify a metagame and then make adjustments. It's like, well, if you're playing a certain deck and then can tune that deck, then you under you you intuitively are understanding what the narrative of the deck is against everything that it's likely to come up against. And you're making tool, you're changing your, your tools for those things by tuning the deck, which effectively means that you're just, you identified how to control the narrative and given matchups. And then you're figuring out, okay, through your sideboarding, here's the cards that I need in my set, in my main, in my 60 against this type of deck in order to control the narrative to a victory. Yeah. So it's like being able to, having the articulation for those things to be able to make measurable changes against. That's, that's the key thing here is like all of this stuff doesn't mean anything if you can't make measurable changes, right? This card worked or didn't work because the structure that I put it in was this and it didn't pan out because of this thing that happened to it in playtesting. And if you can't identify those things, then you don't actually have a conceptual understanding of why that card worked or it didn't. And if you and if you don't understand that conceptually, then you may not be in practice executing it to its fullest potential. So you might be leaving percentage points on the table for an idea that could work, and you're just not leveraging it in the in the ideal way because you're not maximizing it in the structure of how the deck is built. That's that's where it's like if you can if you are able to articulate and identify these things in your deck building and in in, in playtesting, the the relative changes that you can make from uh, build to build will be way more effective, or should be way more effective than if you were just throwing stuff against the wall and trying to go by feel, you know? Yeah. Anyway, hope it's helpful. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a great place to leave it off. Uh, once again, if you can. Uh, like, subscribe, comment, all that stuff. Uh, again, uh, I'll be giving out some cards. Uh, let me grab some real fast. Uh, giving out cards to the people commenting. This uh, this week we're doing uh, 1998. Uh, 19... 95. How 95. many more do we have? How, how, how many more of these do we have? Like 10? Oh, wow. We got a lot. <laughs> Oh, 30, 30 cards, man. Yo, uh, for, 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 for uh, Watsy doing this whole thing where, you know, they, they charged a thousand bucks for four packs or whatever at 30th and, you know, it was a total ripoff. For, for this, this one's going the distance, man. This well, this is, is, this is the one thing that's great about this. A lot of people haven't realized, and the people who've received them, this is 2002 we're doing as well. Something a lot of people have, haven't realized about this, which is, it just makes it great for us. Um, postage is expensive. You know, if you're to ship like a box to somebody, or if you want to like make sure the card gets there. One of the great things about this is like, this is hermetically sealed, you know? Like I shove this into a top loader. I put this into an envelope. I put like a stamp on it and it makes it there. Everybody who it's made it there so far. I just, you know, you make sure that structurally speaking, it's not going to like fold or anything, but it, it just, it's just a nice little like addition. And like, you know, we don't have to look at these. And I think what, I, I don't remember, but one of these is a foil. That's apparently what, what Dom was saying. Uh, yeah, is Dom, one of them... Dom just won the Dom won the Chrome box. So yeah, he's, he's Dom won the Chrome box. Uh, 
So, and, and by the way, if you've already won, that doesn't stop you from winning again. I'm not like, I, I don't have time to keep track of that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and, and 2008 is going to go to one of our Patreon supporters. Uh, that said, uh, thank you for watching, listening, subscribing, liking, commenting, all that stuff. Don't forget, you can pick up our uh, What It Do t-shirts. It's over there. Uh, our uh, Side of It Emboss t-shirts and the classic Eternal Dirtles t-shirts uh, over on our shop. All those links are below. Thank you so much for watching and we'll catch you next week. Hey, thank you for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Check out this other video. And if you can, please support us on patreon.com.